Well, it's uh, incredible to be with you guys tonight. And um, so, I don't know, like, baptism is one of those realities that God is just at work in our midst and doing amazing things. And um, this will seem like a strange transition, but work with me if you could. Um, I, I think often, like, if I could just wear, uh, you know, an ensemble of clothing all day, every day, what would I wear, okay? And uh, you guys all... You guys all have this in mind, too. Don't you ever get jealous when you have kids and they have pajama day at school? Do you ever get jealous of that? You're like, because most of us, our pajamas are the most comfortable. If we all, like, took, um, if some of you guys Facebooked your pajamas, you know, it would be a really interesting, right? Because, like, all of us go to, like, the, the high school shirt that we've been wearing for 15 years straight, right? Like, the, the, the winter shootout shirt from 1992, right? Um, uh, for me, the, the most comfortable clothing that I have, my wife absolutely hates. And isn't that interesting? Spouses, right? Generally, what you wear uh, as your pajamas, doesn't your spouse generally hate that? For whatever reason, it's true for me. So I have these really baggy uh, Puma shorts that I just, uh, they're just so beautifully comfortable. And Puma in general is certainly a godsend. And then um, I have this old uh, safari shirt um, that, that I wear, and it doesn't match at all. And then I wear, um, as many of you guys know about me, I wear high business socks uh, pretty much all the time. Uh, I don't know, they just, they just feel awesome on my feet. So um, really blue baggy Puma uh, sh- uh, shirt, uh, shorts, uh, a safari tan uh, shirt, and then tall business socks. That's, if I could wear anything, like when I get to heaven, the Lord's going to be like, what do you, okay, you're already wearing it. Good to go. Good to go, <laughs> Mark. Um, now, it's interesting when you grow up and when clothing kind of becomes um, a, a symbol or a stature, right? Uh, maybe you remember the first time that uh, shoes mattered, right? Where like you went to the store and you didn't want mom to buy those. You wanted her to buy those because if you were wearing those, then that would mean something in your school. Um, and I know that, that most of us have never made a bib- biblical argument for strong clothing. But actually tonight is going to be an interesting argument for... Um, a certain kind and theme and brand of clothing, okay? Now, if you were with us last week, here's where we were, okay? We were in the tabernacle, okay? I constructed this outside earlier. Um, The tabernacle or the tent, the wilderness tent, was a 75 foot by 100 foot wide structure that God had commanded Moses and the Israelites to construct to the detail. And it's in this, uh, this setting that God and his presence would reside. Okay, uh, kind of an aerial view now of this uh, picture. I uh, constructed this as well with a crayon. Um, this is kind of an aerial view of what we studied last week, the, the building of this and this very ornate uh, structure where God would reside. Well, uh, tonight we, we're going to take a tremendous journey. Uh, do you guys remember the first time you went to Six Flags and, and you had never been on the mine train before or any other roller coaster? And, and, your, friends, yeah, and your friends convinced you to ride the mine train? right? And you started coming around the turn to that like dark tunnel that goes down and you didn't know what the dark tunnel of death was, right? But there was this antsy like piece of excitement in you. Tonight's going to be a lot like that, okay? Like the first time on the mind train, we're going to cover two chapters worth. Uh, I lost count of the amount of verses. And so I, I, all that said, want you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 28. All of you guys are very scared now, um, as rightfully you should be. Exodus chapter 28. You'll notice the subtitle in your Bible, if it's like mine, is The Priests 
garments. So biblical clothing, like this is the first time really in scripture where all of a sudden we have some kind of teaching on garments and what a particular kind of group are to wear. So let's begin here in verse one of Exodus chapter 28. Then bring near to you, this is God talking to Moses still on the top of the mountain as all the people are down below. Bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as, what's the word? To serve me a priest. So what God is saying, I want you to construct this tabernacle to worship me in, and now I'm going to add the, the leaders of the worship. So go get Aaron and his sons, bring them to me, they're going to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Elizer, and Ithamar, name all your kids that, and you shall, look at this, Make holy garments for Aaron, your brother. Look at this. For glory and for beauty. I'm really surprised that there's not a, a clothing line that has taken up this tagline yet, right? Like, like this would be really fitting, I think, for some kind of, you know, like, I really, I'm, again, I think Puma. This would be for glory and beauty, you know. This, so whatever these garments are going to be, they're going to be spectacular. Verse 3, you shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill. <laughs> uh, how many of you guys, that's you in terms of making garments? You have a spirit of skill in garment making. Anyone here? Okay. We do have one. Nice. Praise God. For real? What's your name? Andrea. Andrea. Okay. Say that again. You know how to sew. Perfect. So what's going to happen tonight, Andrea, is I'm going to challenge you that... <laughs> that the high priestly garments that we're getting ready to look at, if you can somehow replicate it for me, because I looked for the costume on Amazon and they don't make it, but if you can somehow replicate, it would be very helpful, okay? So we'll connect, we'll, we'll connect later. You have it next week? Prove it. All right, here we go. Okay. <laughs> you shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. The word consecrate here means set apart. It's, it's almost another word for holy. So by the garments that are for glory and for beauty, there's going to be a separation of Aaron, the high priest, as it were, in this set, uh, from the rest of the people. Verse 4, these are the garments that they shall make. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, coat, of checker work, a turban, and a sash. This sounds like many of your daily tires. And they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. Uh, verse 5 uh, says that they shall, um, they shall receive uh, gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined uh, linen. Okay, next slide. Here's kind of a, an overarching picture. This is actually an artist's rendition uh, of what maybe Aaron... Uh, would have looked like. We're going to break this down. We're not going to read the rest of chapter 28 uh, in a summary fashion. We're going to walk you through uh, the different facets here of the high priestly garments. Uh, next slide here. This will give us an image of the difference between a regular priest there on the right and the high priest on the left. Regular priests wore uh, all white except sometimes a colored sash. So a regular, priest, a regular priest would have white uh, birches, they were called, or maybe as we would describe as breeches, kind of a white undergarment. They would wear a white tunic or cloak. They would wear a white smaller turban than the high priest and certainly uh, most often a white sash. Every once in a while, based on the festival or season, there would be a colored sash. 
But I think it's easy to see here that there's a stark difference between the high priest there on the left and the regular priest on the right. Next slide. So I want to walk us through here what uh, the high priest would have looked like. And this is the classic high priest, you know, form, the arms in the air, worshiping the Lord. And, and all of us right away, I mean, this is a pretty, this is a pretty snazzy outfit. Uh, interestingly enough, there is an individual in our nation that uh, travels around and he speaks to, to congregations about the high priest and his garments. And uh, so I was sort of watching his video just to kind of uh, get a chuckle. And uh, he actually wears a costume, okay? And he said that he, he had an, uh, someone like, like you, my friend, uh, sew and knit the costume, and it cost over $3,000. That's why I'm really excited for your rendition. <laughs> it, it cost over $3,000. And, and she said just the sash in front of the ephod or the uh, kind of the, the apron, as it were, uh, it took her two months to sew and knit it because of all of the fine uh, knitting of it all. So it's a really spectacular uh, ancient garb, okay? Well, the first piece that we see there is uh, the golden uh, crown. It, it looks like a turban. We can't really see the crown, but here's the crown that sits at the base of that turban. And uh, there is inscripted there on the crown, uh, holy to God or holiness to the Lord. Now, it kind of bears with it two different meanings. One would be that the high priest would be set apart, consecrated, as we just saw, for the work of God. The second would be that everything that he would do would be set apart for God's work and for God's glory. So at the very tip of the high priest, the very base of him, like the, the premise that everyone would see would be this inscription on his crown. Next slide. So this turban and this crown starts off the garb. Then we move to uh, kind of the, the football piece of him. Now, uh, one of the best things about football is you get to wear shoulder pads and look significantly larger than you actually are, okay? Um, I really didn't work out that much in high school, but I was a quarterback. And I remember the first time, like, before my junior year, I, like, put on shoulder pads, and I, like, kind of tucked my, tucked my, you know, my sleeves. And, and I, like, went in the mirror. I was like, dude, this is, I'm actually looking pretty, you know, I'm actually looking pretty good. Well, I don't know that it's exactly similar, but the shoulder piece of the high priest was truly significant. What it did is it connected the, breast, uh, the breastplate with all the stones on it, you can see, all right, with the apron. And what it did is it connected it with an onyx stone. Next slide. So this was kind of what this sash connecting piece over both shoulders would connect uh, the brilliant uh, breastplate uh, that we saw just a second ago. So that's what was on the shoulders. Next slide. Now we get a, a picture of the breastplate and go ahead and uh, hit the next slide for us. These are all of the stones in order that would have been placed. And if you read Exodus 28, you'll see these listed out in this order. Uh, four rows of three across. They have multiple representations. One of them, the fineness of the stones, certainly uh, setting apart the fineness of the high priest office, but also, anyone want to take a guess? 12 stones for what? 12 tribes. 12 tribes. I heard someone say a band, um, maybe so. But uh, the, the 12 tribes here of Israel. Now, I tried to do as much research as I could on these. Uh, funny enough, as we were discussing this as a, as a staff, I couldn't wait to tell you guys this. This is like one of my highlights of tonight. I found out that Brandon Castle, our, uh, our worship leader, collected stones as a small child. And so, so all of a sudden, we're like studying this, 
and he like perks up, you know? And I like look at him, you know, and he's like, oh yeah, and Onyx is this, and you know, all these things are that. And I was like, what in the, who, like who died and made you, you know, a geographer or whatever a rock person is called, you know? <laughs> and um, geology, photographer, I don't know, whatever, it doesn't matter. A person that's really intrigued by rock. So Brandon was able to speak into this actually uh, a lot and, and has uh, several of these, but I think you can understand already um, in some cases, the difficulty that would, would have been to find some of these, and you see a diamond even on here. Uh, uh, some of you females, uh, you're, you're like looking at this in tremendous envy, you know? If you're like, man, this would be a great piece of jewelry. You know, I just like sling it on my back and have all these nice pieces on here. Listen to this, though. You're in um, the confines of the tabernacle, or even still, you're walking around the camp of the Israelites in the wilderness, and all of a sudden, this dude walks by. You see what I'm saying? Like what happens in you? You guys know exactly the feeling. Uh, it's when you're in middle school and you're a sixth grader and the most popular eighth grader walks by. You guys remember that, right? Or like sits in the proximity of you at lunch, you know? And all of a sudden you get all nervous, you know? I would imagine that the high priest bears with it that kind of responsibility, that kind of weight, that kind of paparazzi factor, maybe even in our culture. So this breastplate uh, had several different representations, but the most of all was the, the precious stones um, that would separate his office. Next slide. Now, we want to move down to the ephod, and the ephod is the, um, is the most brilliant piece of his uh, ensemble because, uh, as I already mentioned, of how uh, fine it was, of how ornate it was, um, some of the finest linen, even some of the same linen, actually, that put together the 45-foot uh, by uh, a 15-foot structure of the actual tent went into this ephod or this uh, apron, okay? Now, there's several uh, facets of it. Uh, you'll see uh, kind of the, the colored piece that goes up and down. Uh, the sash is actually huge. In fact, in Scripture, you'll see in several different places where the Scripture makes reference to girding up your loins, have you guys ever seen that in scripture? And you felt like it was a naughty word first when you heard it, right? But it's actually a very biblical concept because what the sash does is the premise of it is you're like tying your all, you know, all of your garb together so that you can serve, right? And so, you know, if, if your sash isn't on, if you're, if you're not all tight, you know, you're not going to be able to uh, serve or be as mobile. So that sash plays a huge part. At the bottom of the ephod, next slide, uh, go ahead and uh, hit the next slide here. This is really interesting. We have, uh, and I drew this earlier with colored pencil, we have bells, bells and pomegranates. Really interesting. Again, Exodus 28, read it all for yourself. Bells and pomegranates. Well, think about it, okay? High priest comes walking down the road, you know, and all of a sudden you feel like it's, you know, it's like Christmas time or something, you know? Maybe some of you guys are in the bell choir and you're previous church, you know, it's like wherever the bells are, it would instantly draw attention. So here comes the high priest with, you know, his bells, uh, bells are ringing, right, and his pomegranates, and, and you would know that he's coming. The most significant piece, though, of the bells is that when he was in the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, hearing the bell would be a sign, one, that he was still alive, uh, the scripture makes clear, if they deviate from this outfit, which I know seems strange, work with me here. If this outfit is deviated from, you know what it means? Death. 
If the high priest goes in and he hasn't been cleansed himself, as we see in the Old Testament, he, he dies. And so when you stop hearing the bells, you know that's an indication. In some, uh, in some stories we see a rope tied to his foot to go ahead and yank him out because he gone in there, you know? He, he's dead. Okay. So the bells were a sign and symbol, as it were, of the, the service of the high priest. Next uh, slide, if you can. So here we go. This, this office of the high priest, all the facets, the blue fine linen, the, breast, uh, the breastplate, the ephod, his crown of the inscription, this man was set apart uh, for the work of God. I told you guys last week, only one man on one day, the Day of Atonement, could actually go in the most holy place. So I, I want to ask you a question. You're an Israelite, okay? You live in a tent. You're in the wilderness. And all of the facets of representation between you and God runs through that guy. I just, I want to get personal because we're on kind of this side of that mentality. How do you think you'd feel? Do you think you'd ever question it? Like, like, do you think you'd be placing bets? You are know, like, man, I hope Aaron's righteous because, I mean, he's in there for all of us. I mean, he's a powerful, powerful man called by God, set apart by God, consecrated by God. I mean, this high priest would go in and make atonement for the people, go through the ritual, go through the sacrament. How would you feel about that? Before we move on, I want to make sure that you understand uh, something about us here at our church in Matthias is... Um, we are consistently, consistently um, minimalizing man so that God can fully be exalted. In other words, um, we do not see the office of the pastor, the elders here, there's four of us, as something that is elevated above the body in terms of holiness. The scripture says that in Christ, we are set apart, made holy. But that office of a pastor bears with it not more holiness, but a different responsibility. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? Uh, I, as it were, uh, have the responsibility most often here at Matthias to communicate God's word. That does not make me more holy than any of the rest of you. That doesn't mean that I have more of a beeline to God than any of the rest of you. That doesn't mean that I should be studying the scripture more than any of the rest of you. It means that I've been called by God to shepherd God's flock, to teach God's word, and that he's gifted me to do so. But I grew up with a certain mentality and a culture that this person up here was the one who was set apart, from, uh, uh, set apart by God, the only person really that hears from God, and that everything has to streamline through him. No wisdom comes apart from them. No uh, decisions can be made apart from them. Ultimately, they're the ones that really have the end to God's word. I was talking to, with a good friend uh, who was having a conversation uh, with someone of um, uh, someone of a, of a different faith, uh, maybe a different mentality, and, and and the thought was that that this like priestly office up here is the office that really really understands God's word, and that maybe others don't. I, I just want to make sure, at Matthias, you know, that's not what we believe. We dream, pray, ask God for the day when all of us in Christ crave His word collectively together because what happens is when all of us are feasting from the word of God we show up here 
and we've already been, for lack of a better term, fed. You guys see what I'm saying? And so then the collection of believers aren't waiting on the man from on high to communicate God's word. They're just ready to celebrate the grace of God again and do that together. What happens when you exalt man is when man falls, then what do you do? Like when man fails, when man uh, sins, when the guy up here who's supposed to be uh, infallible, when all of a sudden he, you know, gets knocked off his rocker, then what do the people do? They scramble instead of the whole time understanding that the church isn't not built around man. Christ is our cornerstone. Christ is the high priest. Christ is the head of the church, Colossians 1 says. So because of that, in this body, what you're going to continually see are a bunch of pastors and elders that are diminishing man, taking our responsibilities seriously while empowering the church to be the church. Are we all together? Okay. So that's the difficulty, though, of growing up with this kind of mentality. Some of you guys um, even potentially grew up a Catholic. Listen, I have a ton of Catholic friends that are believers. I mean, that would kick the tail of evangelicals. I mean, just strong in their faith. But then I, I also have some Catholic brothers and sisters where I wonder sometimes what it's like to confess uh, their sins to a person and that somehow that action is making atonement. What Christ has done has, like, has already made atonement. James says that confess your sins so that you may be healed, but the healing isn't coming from a person. It's coming in what God is doing in your heart and the confession of sin and the process of repentance. You guys see what I'm saying? So I, I just want to have a moment right now Uh, Some of you have escalated a man, a person, um, an office in holiness above the rest. There are different layers and levels of responsibility. Let me give you another example, okay? Some of you guys really struggle with this. Husbands are the leaders of the home. Does that mean husbands are more holy or better? Anyone? Okay, some of you dudes are like, yes. Okay, you should think about that, okay? Your wife's like, you know, giving you the nudge. No, husbands are not more holy. They are called by God and are held responsible for the leadership of their home. It's an issue of responsibility, not holiness. So we all together, okay? Now, again, the office of pastor or elder, there are certainly clear biblical qualifications. Those pastors must meet those qualifications. It's, it's an issue of responsibility and calling, okay? So here's the structure of the Israelites. You got a tent to worship in. And you really got one man, though there's several priests that come from one tribe, the Levites, that are going to represent all of us to God, okay? Now, here's what I need you to do, okay? We're, we're getting ready to get on the mind train, okay? So I just need you to, like, buckle up. We're going to read one of the most interesting chapters in the entire Bible, and we're going to read it all, all right? Exodus chapter 29, <laughs> Okay? <laughs> All right. This is what the priest is to wear. And now here goes Exodus 29, verse 1. <laughs> Are you guys ready? No, you're not. No, you're not. Are you done knitting back there yet? Can I go ahead and... Okay, here we go. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, to set them apart. Here we go. That they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish... And unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil, you shall make them of fine wheat flour. This, this is like many of your a picnic 
uh, you know the things you put in a picket, picnic basket. You got a bowl, a couple goats, some unleavened bread, some mixed cakes. Verse 3, you shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bowl and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Okay, if you guys have ever been to like an ordination service or a setting apart service for pastors, very, very similar. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird, uh, and gird him with a skillfully woven band of the ephod. I really get an interesting image right now. Does anyone else? What, what the scripture says here, and you shall put on Aaron, right? Aaron, stay right there, right? And all of a sudden, you've got all these people like putting on this attire. This is incredibly interesting. Verse 6, and you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. Never, ever, ever notice this before. I just want to have a moment with you if we can. Think about this. Uh, the Gospel of John records that Caiaphas and Jesus, the Caiaphas who was uh, then the kind of the, the human high priest and Jesus, the real high priest, standing face to face, when they put the crown of thorns on the head of the Christ, never ever have thought about this before. Think about the beauty of that imagery. Have you ever seen the Passion of the Christ? It's one of the most horrific times. But isn't it interesting that the real high priest the high priest who would make atonement for it all, instead of this crown and a turban, gets a crown of thorns. Gets a crown of sacrifice. And it's with the crown, certainly the whips, where the blood starts to drip down his face. I, I just, like all of this imagery is so incredibly powerful. Then verse eight, you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and Bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall, look at this, ordain Aaron and his sons. Here's where things get interesting. Mind train click number one. Then, verse 10, you shall bring the bull before the tent of meaning. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Just get the, okay? You got Aaron and all the sons, and they're laying hands on the bull. All right? Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your what? With, are, you, are you with me? With your what? With your finger. And the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its what? Dung, you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. We're just one facet into this. So all of a sudden you got all the priests laying hands on bulls. You're to take some blood, put it on the top of the horns. Remember the horns on the brazen altar that were on the four corners, right? Of that seven and a half foot by four and a quarter a foot tall brazen altar. Take some blood, the rest of it, entrails. I mean, this is just crazy stuff. Verse 15. Then you shall take one of the rams, and I imagine that ram isn't necessarily offering himself, and after seeing the bull, right? And Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and the ram's like, heck no, right? But he's unblemished, so probably understands. And you shall kill, and you shall kill the ram, and shall take its blood, look at this, and throw it against the sides of the altar. 
Like, I don't know if this looks like the ordination service that you've been to of your pastor, right? Like, this is, <laughs> just think of like, we were doing that tonight, you know? Hey, listen, we really want to do this tonight. So, you know, cue the live ram. Verse 17. Then you shall cut the ram, look at this, into what? Into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. I mean, this is unlike any consecration service that I've ever even heard of or imagined. It gets better. Verse 19, you shall take the other ram, okay, the the one lone, lone survivor back there, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of that ram. He surely knows his fate at this point. And you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons. And look at this. And on the thumbs of their right hands. And I love the phrasing here. And on the great toes of their right feet. If some of you guys got a big old toe, you know exactly what I'm saying, right? I think this is like the, the people in here that have a bigger second toe than your big toe. How many of you guys are, right, right? Yeah, you guys know what I'm talking about. We, just, we now call that the great toe, okay? <laughs> Check out my great toe, okay? On the great toes of the right feet and throw, the scripture says, the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar, verse 21, and of the atoning oil, and sprinkle it on Aaron. Do you guys all catch that? Now we're not just sprinkling blood on the altar, we're sprinkling it on Aaron and his what? His garments. And on his sons and his sons' garments with him, he and his garments shall be holy, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. But look, we're about halfway through. Okay? You guys got your hands in the air, you know, you're getting ready for the big drop. Listen. Why in the world is this happening? Why is God calling these people to do this? It seems like uh, the main premise or the main ingredient of all of the rhythm and sacrifice and ritual is blood. I've told you guys before, if you're a non-believer here and you know, you're here tonight, hey, thank you so much for coming, and now you think we're a complete cult, right? <laughs> You're like, what in the world? Like, are they going to start putting blood on my right ear? Like, ah, homie, don't play that. You know, I'm out the door. I'll drink some Kool-Aid, but blood on my ear? No way, you know. Listen, the beautiful image that we're watching before our eyes is that God desired in detail for his people to set apart this office so that it would be a shadow of the things to come. And the thing that I really want you to get enamored with is the amount. Like again, as Moses is hearing all this on the top of the mountain, don't you think he's overwhelmed? Like he's, he's been overwhelmed for chapters, right? Like could you say that again, God? I didn't quite catch the, the amount of cubits, right? Like all of the detail, all of the rhythm, all of the right ear, all the symbolic stuff that is all centered around blood. Verse, 30, uh, verse 22 You shall also take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails 
and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the right thigh for it is, for it is the ram of ordination and one loaf of bread and one cake of bread made with oil and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord, verse 24. You shall put all these on the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons and look at this and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Right? So now these things are in their palms and they're waving them around. We see the, we see the implementation of all this in Leviticus starting in chapter 7, 8, and 9. For those of you that want to see all this carry out, verse uh, 25. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar, thankfully not while they're still in their hands, on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is food offering for the Lord. Again, it's not that the Lord needs a food offering. God is establishing this rhythm. I speak. You listen, all these things are shadows of things to come. Verse 26, let's keep going. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast and the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination from what was Aaron's and his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons a perpetual due from the people of Israel. For it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel, from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. And here we see the the meat and potatoes. The holy garments of Aaron, verse 29, shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, shall wear them for seven days. And we see in the Old Testament several, even at times, generations worth of corrupt priesthood, okay? You shall, verse 31, take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meaning. You're like, heck no, I'm not eating that. They shall eat those things which, uh, with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. But an outsider shall not eat any of them. Why? Because they are why? Because they're holy. Pause. There are uh, Canaanites and non-Jews that are part of the camp. And you see God making delineation between those who are his people and those who are not. Outsiders can eat that because this bread is holy, God says. It's an interesting rhythm that he sets. And verse 34 if any of the flesh for the ordination or any of the bread remaining until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. Stay with me here. Verse 35, we'll close this up. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Don't cut any corners. We got to do all of this. The wave offering, the entrails, the kidneys, that poor ram. Verse 36. And every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. And you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it and the altar shall be most holy. Whoever touches the altar, the scripture says, look at this, shall become holy. All of these things, a shadow of the things to come. Please see this as we close verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, uh, two, two lambs a year old day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hymn of beaten oil. What? 
and a fourth of hen of wine for a drink offering. The specificity is crazy. Verse 41, the other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink and on and on and on. Look at how this ends in verse 45. I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God. And verse 36, they shall know that I'm the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Mic drop, right? Now, you're like, Mark, why would you read all that? We enjoyed this summary last week, right? Can, can I tell you why? Can I tell you why I just read all that? John chapter 17. Jesus in his high priestly prayer says, they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And see this, verse 19, and for their sake, what does the scripture say? I what? I consecrate myself. I'm sorry. These are some of the most beautiful words in the entire New Testament. The rhythm, the structure, the blood, the sacrifice, the procedure, the detail, the consecration of the Old Testament priests. I mean, if you had to go through this, I mean, you would appreciate it. Look at what all of the detail has to come to for these priests to be ordained. And what does Jesus say? I consecrate myself. My ordination service is with a cross on my back, walking up a hill, taking nails in my flesh, a crown of thorns dug deep in my skull, whip lashes bleeding out my sides. My ordination service is my sacrifice. I consecrate myself. I don't need anyone else or any other rhythm. I've been commissioned by my father. I will obey my father and I will fulfill my father's will perfectly myself. Do you see the difference? The detail. The specificity. And then all of a sudden, Jesus in a prayer says, I set myself apart in obedience to the Father and fulfill every facet of everything of old in me. You can't appreciate those words unless you read Exodus 29. Do you agree? And unfortunately, like some of you guys would just start in your personal reading, would start reading Exodus 29 and you'd be like, heck no. And you'd flip to James chapter 1. Right? Right? James, man. It's always a good book. Always a go-to, you know? But the beauty of Exodus 29, when joined with these words, how about this next uh, scripture to encourage us tonight from Hebrews chapter 8. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, that Jesus fills now eternally the office of the high priest that here seemingly begins with Aaron. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. In other words, physically, in, in an imagery way, that same office that the high priest would do in going into the holy of holies on the one day of year, Jesus now lives there. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now, if we were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Next slide, check this out. 
They serve, look at this, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Aaron's a shadow. He's wearing a really nice robe. It's beautiful. It's blue. Has some nice shoulder pieces, a beautiful breastplate. But Christ wears a robe of righteousness. What Revelation says, his robe is dipped in blood and he's waiting to come back. That this office that Aaron fulfills as the high priest, Jesus is the better Aaron. Just like Jesus is the better Adam and Jesus the better David and Jesus the better Abraham and on and on and on. This is our high priest in Christ See that you make, the scripture says, or uh, in the verse five there, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. We've seen this over and over. Do it perfectly, make it exactly. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as such more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So before we see this last text, are we all together? Aaron is a high priest. Jesus is a better one. There is no more need for more high priests. We have one high priest. Okay? There's no more need for that office because the office is perfectly fulfilled in Christ. Who has torn the veil like we talked last week. You don't have to sit in your pockets waiting for the, the, the veil to be torn. It's already been torn. And Christ, the high priest, is making consistent, constant intercession on our behalf to God. Now, what does that mean for us? You ready? Nope. Here we go. First Peter. But you. Are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. This would be confusing if the subtitle was qualifications of a pastor. But it's not. Uh, the you there um, is believer in the room. Follower of Christ in the room. In Exodus chapter 19, we, say this, we see this same exact calling of the Israelites. You're my people, a holy nation, a priesthood. You're going to represent me. And now he calls all of us that. Can I ask you a question? Have you received and accepted the reality that you, in Christ, are a royal priesthood? Set apart, consecrated, made holy by the blood of the Lamb, and now his mobile, moving representation in another part of scripture, ambassador? Or is that someone else's job? Did you like see that come up in the job finder? You're like, yeah, someone else has got that. Somebody else's resume is more fit to be a royal priesthood. I'm telling you right now, Christian in the room, this is you. I grew up seeing uh, the old adage, 20% of the, pe or 20 of the people doing 80% of the work. 
and oftentimes doing that work in anger. The free church sees themselves by the power of the blood of Christ as the set-apart, royal, consecrated priesthood chosen by God, a holy nation set apart for his work, for his glory. And they don't just see that as the, the called people up front or the missionaries overseas. Think of the beauty of this room right now in all of us receiving and accepting that call and saying, thank you, God, for that grace. Peter isn't done. Check this out. Your people for his own possession, that you may proclaim, this is the action, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light, somebody. See what I'm saying? Like this is what's happened. This is what's transpired in your heart. Darkness filled with darkness and he's called you out into marvelous light. This is why you're a representation because he's done something in you. He's changed your heart. He's softened you. He's humbled you. Somebody, he saved you. This is why you represent him. You know him intimately. You hear his voice. You see him move. You experience his grace. This is why you represent him. You guys see what I'm saying? This is why you're a royal priesthood. Would you want a priest representing God who does not know God? then what in the world is happening in your heart that's waiting for someone else to be the representation when you yourself know his voice? You yourself have, have tasted grace. You yourself have seen it work. And right now you're sitting in the corner in shame because of unrepentant sin and saying, God can't use me. I'm not good enough. I'm not equipped enough. I started the service by saying he does not need you to be God. So why would you think for one second that if a God that doesn't need you to be God, that he couldn't swoop down and completely transform your heart, increase your faith, and use you in spite of you? If that's the kind of God that we serve, then where are the bounds? Once you were, a, were not a people, I love this, but now you are what? God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All of these things, a shadow, so that tonight we could say we have one high priest. That priest wears a robe of righteousness, and he has made a way to God so that all of us could share in the inheritance of being called his people. And I just want to talk to those who are scared tonight. You haven't owned the calling to disciple others. You haven't owned the calling to represent him. You, you're living a very segmented life in here one way, at work another. Around this group of friends, you talk Jesus stuff. Around another group, Jesus is nowhere to be found. You cannot shut off being a royal priesthood in Christ. I believed for years that there was a light switch because I watched so many folks, including myself, all of a sudden go over to the wall and turn it off. And then when it was convenient, turn it back on. There is no switch. 
in Christ now, together, a royal priesthood, together. Not one more holy than the next. We've all been made holy by the same blood. You guys see what I'm saying? The classification, the qualification in Christ, he sees us all the same. His people, his children. Yes, he's given us different gifts and different responsibilities. And by his spirit, we get to watch those be used. I'm calling the fearful out tonight. I'm calling those who are sitting in the corner. I'm calling those who say there's no way that I could be a priest. Then you're denying the power of Christ. You either receive the fullness of the gospel that says it's good enough, deep enough, loving enough to forgive you, or you deny it all. Are we together? You either receive the grace that's yours in Christ and receive your calling as a part of the royal priesthood, or you say no Jesus at all. You cannot flip the switch on and turn it off. This is the power of the gospel. This is why Exodus 29 is fun to read because Jesus just shows up and says, I consecrate myself. I grab the cross. I hang on the tree even though I can pull myself down and I die so that hundreds and hundreds of years later they could sit in a room and say we are freed, his people, and a royal priesthood. Let's stand together. Come on, church, let's pray. Come on. God, the the shameful right now, I pray that you wouldn't coddle them. I pray that you would convict them with a conviction that leads to repentance. Those completely gripped in patterns of sin, do a work literally right now in this moment that will completely change every facet of their life to represent you receiving grace, living by the Spirit, owning their call as a royal priesthood. God, for those who are pointing fingers, waiting on someone else, I pray, God, tonight that you will empower the church to be the church. I pray that those aren't just words or nice pleasantries. God, I pray in faith right now for a move of your spirit in this body that helps us see the army that we are in you. God, make these no cliches. Make these all realities, God. Thank you, Father, for setting us apart. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us, God. And I pray tonight that we start living like it. Help us live tonight like we're saved.